So joining our series today for a rare and exclusive interview is Mr Paul Blackburn, founder and executive chairman of Blackburn, one of Australia's largest privately owned property development groups. Paul, thanks so much for the opportunity to, to have you on the program. Let's start, if we could, with a little bit about yourself and, and your background. As I understand it, you grew up in Gooseberry Hill. Tell us a little bit about those formative years. Yeah, look, um, growing up in the hills was sort of 45 minutes from Perth and I think um, my parents both being from the country wanted to, I guess as close as they could get to the country, but um, Dad had a real estate business in, in West Perth, so um, that was his, you know, commuted every day, um, probably nearly an hour, and, but wanted to live as close as he could to the country, so lots of trees and hills, and but still part of suburbia, I guess. So yeah, no, it was a great place to um, bring up a family and grow up. And primary school, what were, you, what were you like as a kid when you reflect today? Were you rebellious? Were you an astute sort of a student? I think I was always sort of uh, probably average academically, um, but always um, fairly into sport. Um, uh, I'd say in primary school, they'll probably say the same as now, is very active, I, I would have thought. But uh, yeah, probably a, a, a regular sort of um, kid academically and probably um, good inclination towards sport and yeah. Secondary schooling at Guildford Grammar, wherein you graduated in 1993. You mentioned sport there, as I understand it, swimming in particular was, was uh, one particular sport that, that you really enjoyed. What was it that you liked about swimming? Was it the discipline or was it something else? Yeah, I think in um, probably in sort of late primary school and early early senior school, I became a good swimmer. Um, but then you go as they swimmers do to private, um, to club swimming clubs and you know, I think in Australia, obviously, it's a big, big sport. Um, but you end up sort of doing 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. and 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. every day, and Saturday mornings as well. So it's something like, um, you know, 10 sessions a week of two hours. So I think you're swimming for about 20 hours a week, and probably did that for five or six years. So um, outside of school, if you once you're into the swimming world, that's about all you do outside of school. <laughs> Following graduation, you enrolled in a Bachelor of Commerce degree at Murdoch University, specialising in particular in management and marketing. What prompted the decision to study at university? And then I suppose the second part of that is to study business and, and management. Yeah, well, I, I remember asking the uh, student advisor in year 12 or year 11, you know, what, what are the options on university and what do you do? And also my father, um, uh, you know, parents asking them what, what they thought. And I, I think I, I chose a, a commerce degree because it's just a good all round training and a bit of everything. Um, and uh, it sort of sets you up to leave your, your, um, your options open in life, I guess. Um, whereas if you become a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer, that's kind of what, what you are. And, you know, um, I just thought it was a good all round, uh, all round course to do. And both of my oldest brothers had done it as well, the same sort of thing, and just all studied business. and. Um, and felt that marketing and management were the two best options of that. And I really um, chose Murdoch University because of its um, Asia studies, you know, it had a strong focus on Asia. And in particular at the time, it's interesting now, the big thing in Asia and, and trade is China. But back then it was Indonesia. We didn't hear the word China. It was, we learned Indonesian at high school and Mandarin wasn't even an option of language available. And um, Indonesia at that time was seen to be the next big thing. Um, now it's getting more talk about it, but it's, I think it's the fourth biggest country in the world or something now, and, um, but it's finally coming 20 years later than we thought. But I, I had all that and then Indonesia economically didn't do very well for 20 years. And although it's closer to Indonesia, Perth and Sydney is, so I really thought, well, this country is, is close to this. A lot of it was really studying and traveling and learning about Indonesia and business and, and whatnot, which Murdoch was very good at. 
So you graduate from Murdoch University and, and what came next? You did a little bit of work here and then off you went yeah. for a number of years travelling. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I'd heard stories from older people sort of saying, look, it's hard to do it later in life. If you're going to go see the world, do it in your 20s. And it's hard. And I really took that on board and knew that now's the time to do that. And not just about travelling and seeing, but living, living freely and not knowing where you're going to be next. And not having any fixed expenses and mortgages and cars and all that sort of thing. So um, really thought I'll take advantage of that. And I didn't really know how long it would go for. Um, I didn't think I'd come back to Perth. I really wanted to live outside of Perth. And I thought I'd live in Asia at the time. I thought probably Indonesia, but traveled a lot. And every year or so during the five years of traveling, I'd sort of work six months, then travel, save up and backpack six months and um, went across four or five continents around, I think it was 40, 50 countries or something. and um, But yeah, left with about 5,000 saved to um, one way ticket to China and wanted to get to the middle of China. It was just this thing I had in my head. And China was very different then than it is now. It was sort of no, no not a lot of paved roads and, and, and wooden houses and things. So um, that was in mid 90s. Uh, and yeah, really just wanted to travel. And every year or two, I just, when I'd either run out of money or think, oh, maybe now's the time to go back to Australia. I just convinced I'll go, remember that you know, this is going to be harder to do later. Um, and, uh, and it is harder to do later. So um, I'm glad I kept going. And what were some of those experiences? So as you said, China, Vietnam, Indonesia, plus so many other countries. I remember reading an article where you wouldn't come home for years at a time. You wouldn't necessarily speak to your parents for six or nine months. What were you learning about yourself over that time? Yeah. Well, the good thing is back then as well, we didn't have internet and I really didn't have phone, mobile phones as well. So the only way really was the occasional sort of collect call from wherever you were every three to six months or so I'd, I'd call home or when I could get a phone, sometimes maybe every month. But most of it then, were very Asia was um, a very different place 25 years ago or 20, 22 years ago compared to now. So there wasn't the um, development there is now. Um, but one of the best, you know, I got into Hanoi after crossing from China um, and bought an old Russian Minsk trail bike for $300 in the street off a guy and, um, and rode that all through um, uh, Vietnam over a couple of months and right down to Ho Chi Minh and then sold it in the streets there. And so, you know, a bit backpack on the back and, you know, I, at the time I just thought it was what you do and kind of normal, but now I look back and think, oh, it's not, I'm, it seems not many kids <laughs> seem to do that now and not, not a lot did it back then. But yeah. It's incredible. As you said, a lot of people have a gap year. You had sort of five years off and about travelling. You also lived in London. You lived in North America for a period of time. You lived in the Middle East. What were you doing when you were working there? Was it just sort of, yeah. you know, admin sort of task to get you through? Yeah. Um, I think after after the years of travelling in Asia and then did what a lot of um, young Australians do and go to work in London and um, I actually went for a job, went for a recruitment agency and they said, do you want to do what we do? So I worked in marketing recruitment, recruiting Australians to work in jobs in London um, with an, uh, a multinational marketing um, recruitment agency. Um, but then after a year or so of that, um, I then had saved up enough and um, I uh, hitchhiked from London to North Africa, right through, through France and Spain, Portugal. Um, and then um, after that, went to Canada to work in Whistler, as a lot of Australians do as well on the ski resorts as, um, as a lifty or selling tickets or whatever. Saved up again and then travelled North America for six months. Um, then went back to London to work, um, saved up again. But then I think um, I, I was actually feeling pretty good one day and um, 
after that traveling and I remember on the Piccadilly line in London um, the train broke down and I looked around and saw all these white faces and depressed people and I, I just said I can't do this I'm not going to live in London anymore and um, went I uh, thought I'm going to have a job that's outside so I wanted to be a dive instructor and went down to Dahab in Egypt on the Sinai desert there and um, after traveling through Egypt a bit and ended up there and wanted to do my dive master course and would take take people diving so I did that course and then took people diving and then left that job after a period of time uh, and then worked way, way back overland um, to Europe through sort of Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, um, Israel and Turkey over it was probably a year period of working and then, um, then travelling my way back um, to Europe overland. So many different experiences, no doubt, across those years, so many different cultures that you're exposed to. When you reflect on that period today, has it had any major impact in the way, in your outlook on, on life or business? Yeah, I, I think without doubt, if I had have, say, gone straight into a job after university in Perth and done that, that I think it's very unlikely I'd be doing what I do now. And I, I think, you know, that learning, learning how to budget, you know, learning, um, about how to communicate with people and I very rarely travel with anyone else so you're always on your own so you've got to you know develop your people skills and obviously with different languages and different cultures and how to think for yourself and work out how you're going to get somewhere and I think that's a lot like business in a lot of ways and so the business skills I learned in that were, were probably far more beneficial than having gone into a graduate program at an accounting company or some other job in Perth. And if I recall correctly, you returned to Perth in 2001 and began working in your father John Blackburn's business, Blackburn and Joyce Real Estate, a business which had been operating continuously for since the 1960s really. Uh, tell me a little bit about that first sales and marketing role. I think you were going to work over one summer just to see what it was like and then you know you yeah. sort of got a taste for it and stayed on for about 18 months. Yeah. I sort of came home for one summer intending to go to Sydney or back to London maybe but I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do and um, that business um, had done was Blackburn Real Estate and then Dad took on a partner in the 80s, 90s and it became Blackburn and Joyce Real Estate. Um, and they were um, largely a property um, management company, project marketing, and they did a lot of apartments. And um, I came back for a summer in Perth and just went, wow, the weather's here pretty, is pretty good. And um, uh, Dad said, look, I need some help on a project of townhouses they were selling in Mandra. And um, I said, okay, we, I think you could do your sales certificate in a, year, in a week then, and I don't know what it is now, but um, got that and then um, did that over the summer and thought, oh, that was pretty good and, and made money and thought oh, we'll actually quite like it here and ended up doing that job for one or two years um, uh, before saying look I, I uh, want to set up my own business um, doing a set, doing my own project marketing business. Um, yeah. What was the, the motivation because I've read that before where you had a, a passion for wanting to create your own business rather than spending the rest of your life working for somebody else or at least you know the rest of your 20s and 30s working for somebody else. What, what, what was the impetus for wanting to create your own I think I always thought even from high school through university that I ended up starting my own business or doing my own thing, whether it was an NGO or whether it was um, in politics or something, doing my own thing um, and really just needed that experience and got the experience travelling and working in different companies and different t industries and then did that year or two in property and thought I really like property because it's something concrete, you can see it, you know, you can you can touch it and feel it and um, and I think I'd also grown up around probably hearing about it around the dining table and I never thought I'd get into property. I really was, it was probably the least likely option in my mind of something I was going to do but really enjoyed that and um, 
and had made some money probably for the first time in my life. So I'd, and the market was pretty good and um, thought this is this is pretty good and um, I'd like to you know set up my own project marketing business. So we've spoken about your early career. Let's now explore the launch and success of Blackburn, the business you established in 2003. You took out a $600,000 loan, if I recall correctly, to buy part of the rent roll for yeah. Blackburn Real Estate. Tell me about the initial focus of the business. It was geared towards sort of development consultancy and, and yeah. project marketing. Yeah, I think that's a bit of a lot of the reason for the success now in property development. I got to work with 20 or 30 different developers and um, not more, more important than learning what to do, I learned what not to do because there's so many mistakes and things and people come and go in property development. So I learned a lot through that. And the project marketing business built quite quickly over five years because I was doing more than some project marketing agencies now see themselves as just handling the marketing and sales, but um, I really um, had learned to understand the product and what people want, and I had a marketing background from training at university and working in marketing. Um, so doing things like um, not just seeing it, I think people think marketing is about sales or advertising. And you know, there was, I knew I had a really good understanding of marketing that the product design and market research was just as important as advertising. If you get the product right and it meets the market from market research and understanding the market, then um, then the product should sell itself. So you don't need any fancy sales skills or a lot in advertising. So focused a lot on um, that for developers and most of the developers in Perth started using um, me and my team um, to handle their, um, their project marketing jobs. And I was selling a bit initially, but as the business built in that first five years, built a sales team and I would more sort of get the projects together, even from helping find the land for developers and then helping brief the architects on the design, doing everything in the marketing and the strategy. And I sort of felt I was doing almost everything except for financing it and appointing the builder. And that's what led to the property development side of things. And a good time to launch the business as well, just as the economic conditions in Western Australia really took took off. What what sort of impact did that have? Yeah, I mean, it was that sort of thing. Although you've got to work hard and you know have some training, whatever the you know fifty percent of I think of anyone in success in life, whatever it is, is luck. And it was a good time to start a business. And um, two thousand and three um, to two thousand and six, that first three years, the market just got stronger and stronger in Perth. And um, we were selling out projects of say 100 apartments and we'd sell them in three months and for developers and obviously that was quite profitable and that's what gave me the initial capital to start being able to buy development sites in um, sort of after five years of, of doing that. You mentioned the do's and don'ts that you're exposed to in working with so many developers, not just here in the west coast but over in the east as, as the business expanded. What were some of the common mistakes that a lot of developers yeah. were making? The people, the, the mistakes they make is, is I guess when you have people from say a finance background or a construction background, which is most of property development, the tenant finance or construction background is, I think people from a construction background sort of feel that you try and make money in a feasibility by saving money. And so therefore the quality is not necessarily there. Um, and so I sort of felt I, as a marketing person, I understand you make money sometimes by spending money and doing a high quality product and people would pay for it. Um, and then the finance sort of background developers that focus on just spreadsheets don't focus on what the market actually wants and they just play with spreadsheets and see profit go up or down or costs and spend a lot of time on a computer rather than I was out talking to the market and um, I even um, when I wasn't selling I'd always be there at launches of new developments with the sales team and talking to buyers and understanding what they wanted and doing a lot of reading and thinking about what people want and delivering the product they want rather than 
trying to uh, just focus on the numbers and spreadsheets and build cost. That was always important, but that's secondary, I think, to giving people what they want. Let's fast forward to 2006 and you acquire your first project, 84 Subiaco Road, three level walk up, 18 apartments, which you then go on to refurbish. Tell me about that transition into working for other developers into becoming a developer or an investor yourself. Yeah, look, that, that first um, few projects um, was really 80% of the sales in the project marketing business was for other developers. And I sort of did that small one of 18 and um, that one, I, you know, had a year or two to settle, but I got possession before settlement on my first one and we refurbished them. And luckily the market had gone up a lot by the time we went to sell them a year or two later. So that gave a good profit to be able to then reinvest in another block of land. And um, But generally the philosophy was is just do one at a time initially. And that's where a lot of people go wrong as well is trying to do too much at once. And I always thought, no, I won't do it unless I can just buy the land myself um, and provide the equity myself and just do one at a time. And then as equity built, I then changed the philosophy, which we have now still, I'm very rigid on it. We only do one a year and just don't don't try and do too much and don't don't grow too big too quick and I think if you've got the equity to buy the land and a bit more to get it to pre-sales design um, and holding costs and whatnot for a year or two after buying the land um, then you can always you, know, you can always fund it um, with with um, construction finance so um, whereas a lot of people might leverage land or then try and syndicate or borrow from others for those initial costs you still need the equity, you're going to need the equity at some point. So I always made sure I had the equity up front um, to be able to do that. But um, yeah, really trying to, was about um, go slow. I'd just seen so many developers go broke or go under or run out of cash or then they would try and make money by cutting the quality out of the product and then the buyer's unhappy. And I'd, I'd seen all, all different people make different mistakes. So um, just thought, just deliver a good product, make sure we're selling it at a fair price and and we're moving fairly quickly. I've always looked at um, return on equity um, probably over profit margin. So that's why we've been able to keep prices low and quality high. We have a low profit margin or lower than many, but because we're in and out of developments and move quick from buying the land within three to three to five years, get in and out. And when land sits there for years, it's just very hard to get a viable return on the equity that's invested. So business is performing strongly, market conditions are strong, and then GFC hits in latter part of 07 and, and into 2008. What impact did that have on the market, broadly speaking, but then what opportunities did it throw up for you? Yeah, the interesting thing is I've always tried to be counter-cyclical. I wasn't very good at much at high school um, and university academically, but one thing I did understand was economics and supply and demand and market cycles and had a good feeling for that. So I always thought just you know, buy in the low, sell in the high, that sort of um, philosophy. So, but when the GFC hit, a bit like COVID in WA, if we didn't watch the news, we wouldn't have known how it was happening. Um, but the benefit was, was interest rates, I think, were 7 or 8% um, for development finance um, pre-GFC. And when they dropped rates, um, you know, that just stimulated the market. They had so much room to move in dropping rates. Um, it just really, really made the market take off. But a lot of developers had had the wrong product and got the wrong thing and you know did go under or they had the wrong structure and building prices went up a lot in 07 people had sold in 06 and then couldn't build them in 07 and that time I was just starting my own developments but we also had the benefit of getting paid on a lot of developments we did but I just saw developments not go ahead that we'd been working on for other developers and I just thought you know what I can't take the risk of other developers anymore this is we can do all this work and not get paid so let's focus on starting to do our own 
projects and over five years sort of morphed into just doing our own developments. I want to ask you about that because from the outside looking in, it looks like there was two iterations of the business. There was that first five or six year period where there was a lot of development consultancy services going on and a lot of project marketing services. Uh, but then post GFC, you morphed into more of a bona fide property development group yourself. I think you had 100 staff at one point and eight yeah. divisions and operating in all different states. Uh, and even I think international expansion was spoken about. What were the lessons from that period? Was it the, you looked at the GFC and thought, okay, let's just focus on our core? Well, yeah, look, the property development staff and initially was only three or four people and had say 90 people in the real estate side, yet um, the income when that first few projects finished, it ended up being 90% of our profit was property development with say 10% of our staff. And and I you know just went, this is crazy. It's like business 101. That, look at where you're making. We had all sorts of divisions. We had investment sales divisions, we had financial planning, we had finance broking, strata management. We we're up to 5,000 apartments we strata managed. We built up 1,000 our property management, which we still do in the property management, we're about 1,200 now. Um, though, just went, what, where, what, what do we want to do? Let's get back to the basics. Um, and also on the state, I was flying a lot over east and sort of took my eye off the ball in WA and I thought, there's not really strong developers in WA. I'm just going to focus on property management, finance breaking our services, which is a smaller part of the business, but they fit well with what we do. Um, but the property development side um, grew that, which is now about 20, 25 staff. Um, but now the business only has half the staff, but um, probably um, somewhere 200 times the income. Because um, the good thing about property development is you don't have a big overhead in-house. You can, we outsource construction, we outsource architecture, engineering. You can outsource so much, so we only have to take on those costs when we, when we need them. Do you see a lot of developers make that mistake where they get too big and they try and bring construction in-house, they bring not necessarily sales, but they try and bring the architecture and the design in-house and they get bloated and bloated and bloated and yeah. then they have to get rid of heat? Absolutely, and you know, it is a, a cyclical uh, business and there's a lot of we, we're pretty rigid around launching one project a year, but sometimes it can be two in a year, then none for two years. But um, we've been, that's part of the success is just trying to keep a pipeline of developments launching. But yeah, it is very difficult um, to do that, to just keep the right structure of a small overhead in-house um, and be able to outsource as much as possible. But yeah, I see it all the time where people, um, usually it's developers actually that try to then get into the sales and marketing side. And if you don't have that as a background, I've seen so many developers go, we want to get in, we can't outsource to project marketing agencies and we're paying them all these commissions and all they do is stand there in, in a hot market, take orders and stuff like that. And I, I just think, oh, there's a bit more to it than that. And, uh, you know, a lot of developers try to bring it in-house. Now, we have project marketing business in-house because that's what we started doing and it's in our DNA. And uh, I see us more as a project marketing business that just happens to finance and build our own stuff now. And that means that we focus on the market and the product. But a lot, yeah, try and go down and go into construction and the margins are low and it's a very technical area and you need a lot of expertise and a lot of risk in construction. You're seeing that now with construction firms and um, whatnot. So I've always said, no, we'll outsource construction um, and just outsource as much as we can so we don't have that um, that, that overhead in-house in, in and, and also to get the best people. For architects, for example, we could save a lot in architecture to bring a few architects in-house, but we're not necessarily going to get the, the best people off and run their own business and we can tap into different architects depending on the project and what we need um, and really just make sure we pick the best architects in, in the industry rather than just who we happen to have 
in-house. I want to ask you about the business model of Blackburn. As you mentioned, one project per year or thereabouts, if it's two one year and, and none the next, that's okay. Uh, little to no syndications or JVs. What's your thinking behind that? Um, there was a couple of reasons. I think when you, um, for the people who syndicate or use others' money for the equity and property development, that ends up being, say, a third or a quarter, sometimes half of your time and, and stress and energy in going into capital raisings or other people's money. And we can spend that, we get, that frees up 30% of our time just to focus on the product and the market and the quality and the design and the acquisition and all the other things in property development. So I think it distracts people a lot. but. Also, in the, and sometimes syndicates and people who use others' money can get lucky, and you know they they um, during depending on where the market is and can make make some make some um, good profit out of it. But I always thought, well, if we can do it with our own equity, then we don't have to pay um, for that equity, and I can pay myself. So rather than do twice as much with twice the work and twice the stress and having to buy twice the sites um, and using others' money, I always thought we'll just do one a year but just do the biggest ones you can do with, with the, the cash you've got, with the equity you've got. And um, yeah, just didn't want to be able to pay out uh, you know, half the profit and doing JVs or paying out um, uh, equity returns to, to others and just try and stick to what I can do within my own means. In terms of the mandate of the business, particularly say over the last 10 years, uh, it seems larger, higher end apartments, areas of undersupply, areas that have a high median house price. What are the, the fundamentals you analyse to ensure that what you're trying to achieve meets that, that criteria? One of the reasons first we moved into that larger high end owner occupier apartments is that it's not so prone to fluctuations in the economy and interest rates. Interest rates are the big lever they have in property. and. Um, when I, I just never want to be susceptible, it's such a long lag of three, four years between when you either develop it, design it, and then sell it, and then settle it, that economic cycles can change in the meantime. And if interest rates, like we've seen the last year, they've sort of um, doubled, um, you just never know when that's going to happen. And I generally wanted to go for buyers that aren't borrowing to settle. And I thought, well, driving around the western suburbs of Perth um, and living in there um, the last 10 years or so, see all these. Um, houses that were all older homes where obviously kids have left home, the homes are worth two to five million, huge amount of equity, um, and people living in pretty average homes that are worth two to five million, and usually only one or two people in the home, and that's about half the homes in the western suburbs. And I don't know the number, but many, many billions of dollars, and I thought, well, that, that's, that's the market I want, and these, these people want to stay in the area. But due to the planning um, problems and, and the, the outdated planning system in WA, there just wasn't any options or not many options for those people to stay in the area that they raised their family in. So I thought, I, I think there's a huge market there. We tested a little bit, they sold well and just thought that's all I want to do is um, have people that are, are buying mostly with cash and not, not borrowing and selling their home and buying it because it's somewhere they want to live in, not a speculative investment where you know, um, they're just punting on the market going up or down and um, having to rely on the rent to pay the mortgage and all that sort of thing. So we still do get 20% investors or something in the projects, um, but I didn't want that to be the core of the of the um, apartment developments. And, and a lot of apartments developments are around 50% investors. Um, uh, so just thought I'll go for ones where there's owner occupiers, larger, higher end apartments in the western suburbs of Perth generally, where there's limited supply and very high demand. 
Clearly the, the business is one of the most respected and prolific development groups, not just here in Perth and Western Australia, but also right across Australia. What have been the keys in being able to cement a, a, such a positive reputation in the marketplace? Yeah, I think um, focusing not just on trying to make every dollar out of every project it was about, I want to do 20 projects over 20 years, not have one and then retire or five and then retire. And, um, you know, we will go higher quality. We spend a lot more, even after we've sold them all during a development, we don't have to. We end up spending millions more on the development as things come up. Um, or, up, or even upgrading it um, to a higher quality, whether it's taller trees or higher quality um, wallpapers or something. So spending, um, spending more to make sure it looks right and not focusing on just trying to squeeze every dollar out of every development. Um, and it's not, that's not just about giving money away, it saves on money on marketing in the next project because people buy them and get a lot more referrals or they know the brand and so they'll buy them um, uh, quicker and save us on marketing funds on, on the next project. So. In terms of the, the growth of the business over the past, say, decade, the, the headcount hasn't necessarily grown, but the size and the scale of projects has grown, but also so has the median price, uh, and we were talking about one of those projects earlier. So have you been able to navigate that growth? There's obviously a lot of temptation to move into other markets or have multiple projects on the go. How do you ensure you're still profitable and growing as a business when you're still only doing one project a year? How do you manage that? Yeah. Well, the projects have just got bigger, I guess, as there was more equity and um, whatnot went from uh, sort of that 18 apartment project to then a 50 apartment project to then an 80 apartment project. Um, then a big leap was 10 years ago with Aria Swanbourne was 156 apartments um, and they were larger higher end owner occupier apartments and um, and then sort of more like five years ago going to one Subiaco the more 250 apartments but average price of you know a million to two million each right up to five million each so although it was still only one a year um, they went from sort of 20 million dollar developments to 400 million dollar developments so um, and they take five years from start to finish so 400 million dollars developments is $2 billion um, under development, either at acquisition or you know a year from completion, which is still working on them a year after they finish. So um, they've got they've got a um, a lot bigger. Still, just sticking to one a year, I think, is a key philosophy. It just means a good time to launch projects. Start of summer in October, so it means that with an in-house sales team, we can always make sure we've got the resources available and the focus to be able to launch one at the start of every summer. Um, but it also, that doesn't sound a lot when you say it like that, starting one a year, but you know, that's over a billion dollars worth of projects and close to two. So uh, they just got bigger and bigger. I'm always interested in the risk equation as well, and you sort of mentioned it throughout the interview so far, but how do you define and manage risk in the space that you play in? I think there's probably only one other or a handful of others, um, quite a lot at the lower end of the smaller scale, but only a handful in the, in the space that you play. How do you manage risk and ensure that you're not over leveraged or that you're not taking on something that's you know too big for the team? Yeah. Um, well, I think one, as a sort of younger person, a growing business as well, I always had the philosophy, maybe my father sort of hammered that into me, is never have debt on um, things like your home. I tried to not have debt on my home, pay that off as quick as you can, um, not have debt on cars or boats or, um, you know, don't live beyond your means, I guess. And that's what a lot of people, sort of younger developers particularly, will settle one or two projects and go and buy a Ferrari or something and suddenly they're, you know, they're leveraged up on everything and um, then the market inevitably um, doesn't go as well. Um, now we've had a good run and I haven't had loss making projects but um, 
yeah, generally just tried to live live within my means and just make sure we can do it with our own equity um, and just do that start one a year initially it was only do one at a time so one every two or three years and then started doing one a year so just living within your means and focusing on the project we spend a lot of time in our monthly board meetings and monthly project control group meetings on risk management we have risk management charts and talk about everything every possible risk gets a lot of time analysed on that and how do we mitigate that risk and what can we do to protect against that risk and that's you know it's that's why there's not a lot of competition in um, apartment development in Perth there's just a, there's not a lot around because it is a risky thing but when it's when you know what it when, when it's what you do and you've got expertise in it and you've got the capital that's why it's a good place for me to be in and that there's not a lot of competition strong demand um, we really know what we're doing we've got the equity to do it um, and we focus heavily on risk management and just always looking at what could go wrong and how do we mitigate against that risk. I want to ask you about the importance of team. I know you're really big on, on having a culture and having the best people as possible inside the business, having a really solid working environment. How important is that to success? Well, I think it's everything. I mean, I, I couldn't do over a billion dollars worth of projects on my own. And the team I see is not just our internal team of 50 people, it's the it's the external team as well and you know the people who work with our architects and builders and I think on every day a week on average they say there's about 500 people working for us sometimes a thousand sometimes a hundred but depending on what stage projects are at there's about 500 people and I see them all as part of the team so always ensured that um, with contractors that people get paid on time that we don't drive we don't always go for the cheapest we go for the best and pay people well um, externally as consultants but also internally and just had a philosophy of making sure we get the right people in the industry and pay is usually second on people's scale of who they work for so although we do pay in the higher end of for, for the roles um, just try and make sure people have a culture and other team members that they want to work within um, and it's very much been a sort of work hard play hard culture and that you know that the types of people that um, we attract really um, want to want to work hard but also want to work on the greatest on the best projects but also have a good time doing it and you know that's the perfect world doesn't always work like that there's bad times and good times and culture goes up and down um, over times but um, I think we've certainly um, had a lot of long-term staff and um, most of the people um, that we have in our developments team um, been here for, for 10 years or so so having that long-term experience and people that stay long-term and make sure we recruit, train and retain the, the best people in the industry is, is really important. And um, So yeah, not just giving people a good place to work and paying them well, but um, I think making sure they can work on great projects. You know, and a lot of the people here would rate that right up there on top of um, sort of pay and just, just the work environment and culture and conditions is they get to work on these great projects. And once you've worked on some of these three, four hundred million dollar projects and they win awards and they're um, you know, great projects. If people can, younger property development manager can pretty much do anything after that. So, um, I think the quality of projects really helps. Are you doing anything differently today than what you were doing ten years ago? Not necessarily in the size and scope of the projects, but is there anything you know now that you wish you knew five, ten years ago? I think we're doing a lot more of the um, of the risk management um, the side of it. as the projects get bigger is related to bigger projects but the risk management side of things um, and particularly spending more time on financials and what if analysis um, and things like that when you're talking about bigger projects there's bigger numbers involved um, so a lot more time on on that um, and also as they get 
bigger projects as well, um, the mistakes are bigger and the cost of mistakes are bigger. So that relates to everything from the design of the apartments, just being more fanatical. We're always pretty fanatical about design, but just being um, really what some people would say is over the top in terms of design and the number of reviews of every bedroom, bathroom, the entry, how the foyer looks and the amount of detail we go into that and just visually try and model every inch of the building before we start construction. And um, you know, I don't want to find a mistake. There's a whole column of apartments with a bedroom that is too small for a, a king size bed or something like that. Um, on a smaller development, they can be more forgiving, but on the big projects, you've really got to get every, every detail right. As you know, a lot of people try to deploy that approach now. It's very really fashionable to be obsessive of, of detail, but yourself and, and some of the other more experienced developers have been uh, really concerned about that for a long time. What, what drives your, where do you get the inspiration or the motivation to be that obsessive over the finer details? I think it comes from also having spent that five years working for other developers where often the, the reality wouldn't be as good as the dream. And when we're selling off the plan, you're selling something that doesn't exist, we try and make sure the reality is better than the dream. And um, so designing it well, but then making sure you over deliver or deliver on the promise of what people are expecting, particularly when it's home. This isn't just an investment property. Most vast majority of um, baby boomers buying high-end apartments to live in for the rest of their life. Um, so it's a big responsibility in that, that you've got to get every inch of it right. And um, but also in property development, small mistakes in design are very unforgiving. If the living kitchen aren't quite big enough to put a third chair in or something like that, if it's um, still for sale at completion, um, that, you know, that, that can really affect your, your, um, your price. So we've just got to make sure we get every, every little detail right. But I also enjoy the detail and we don't just leave it to the architects or the interior designers. We very much see ourselves as the designers that work in partnership with the architect and in partnership with interior designers and, and builders and others to make sure it's not just saying, oh, we're just a development manager and we just, you know, my job is just to get all these other people that are good at this stuff and, and I just sort of appoint people, pay them and manage them, um, which is how a lot of property development works in saying, no, we take responsibility for this design and thinking through every detail of the design. I thought we'd close out our discussion by exploring a few more general topics. You did touch on it before, but how would you describe your leadership philosophy or approach? Probably um, a bit about leading from the front as well. Like every launch, I'm, I'm still there, um, making sure we're there with the development managers and the sales managers and marketing managers and sales agents to really keep talking to buyers and stay in touch with the market. I think it's very dangerous as a business builds that you lose, lose um, connection with who the people are that are buying and living in your product at the end of the day. So I try and meet as many of them um, as, as I can. Um, and lead, leading from the front, leading by example, I think, for the staff. Um, I being, you know, being quite hands-on, I guess. Um, but as a business has grown, weighing that up against also knowing there's a big business and ensuring recruit and retain the best people and then um, giving them a lot of autonomy to, to get on with their job. And I've spoken to other private developers and I don't see invoices and I haven't for years, for example, but I'll approve a budget at the start of a project um, and uh, I give the power to the development directors to, to even accept contracts on my behalf with the power of attorney and getting good people and then giving them the, um, giving them the autonomy and the power to make decisions and run the project as, as, um, as their own. Um, but, but weighing that up against also having reports in place to ensure that I know a lot about what's going on 
um, and also have approved um, annual budgets, say, for them to work within and then let them get on with working within those budgets. What, what, what motivates you each day? You don't need to work, you could retire or you could sell the business if you wanted to, you're still so young. What motivates you to come into work every day? Is it wanting to build a legacy or is it something else? Yeah, I um, thought about it a lot the last five years. I guess I really um, enjoy the projects and I think if I wasn't, I wouldn't be doing it if I was just doing say house and land packages or, or a smaller development. Um, I probably would be doing something else, but these um, big projects, I've really enjoyed them the last five, five to ten years. And um, where you, two, you know, two to four hundred million dollar developments, transforming town centres, projects that are going to be around for a hundred years, they're award-winning projects, a lot of them, um, and changing people's lives. And I thought I'll, I'll do that. And we brought on more senior people and retained a lot of people and brought on more staff, so there's less pressure on me every day to look at every detail um, so I can enjoy it more but also um, we've now got the systems in place where I can know what's going on use my experience and value add without being over every detail which I've quite enjoyed um, and I enjoy the team I work with um, we've got a great team internally and I enjoy working with the best architects and um, all that um, but just don't necessarily want to be involved in every every detail um, and we'll do that more and more so over the next five years and sort of um, still knowing what's going on and not getting too removed from the market and the operations, but know what's going on through good reporting and accurate reporting and um, meeting procedures um, around meetings and whatnot, um, but uh, not having to run every detail. Um, but yeah, I think they're just um, legacy projects that um, will be around in Perth for a long time and um, really transforming the landscape in Perth. There's only, was only 15% to 20% of people living in apartments and that, um, is on its way to doubling, um, so it's going to be 30 to 40 percent. Um, and I think it's a, there's still huge demand. There's a huge undersupply of larger, higher-end quality apartments in Perth, and there's very little competition. Very little, um, uh, uh, very few other projects um, uh, delivering what we do. So I still see we've got, you know, as far as I can see, it's probably five years. Anything beyond that's probably a guess. But I think the next five years in this market of larger higher-end apartments around the western suburbs um, is going to be a great area to be in with a lot of demand and not a lot of competition. So, but I, but I you know, still want to take more time to travel and I've got young kids now so I want to spend more time with them so um, hopefully um, you know, being able to spend less time on the detail on every project and less hours working on each development and more on um, family and travel and myself hopefully. You're still an avid traveller as we just heard, particularly to Asia and to the Middle East and, and countries uh, in and around those regions. What do you enjoy so much about travelling? Obviously you're doing it a little bit differently now with the family. Do you get a lot of inspiration that you then bring back into a work context when you travel? Or Over the last um, sort of six months I've spent a um, bit of time in North America and Europe as well and and, and staying in different hotels gives a lot of good design ideas. A lot of the best hotels have a lot of the best ideas, whether it's lighting or I get a picture of how they do LEDs or the type of furniture they're using or the wallpaper. And it's a great way to be able to get inspiration and um, talking to different people. Um, but when I am in Perth, which is probably about nine months of the year, I'm working so hard when I'm here that I try to fit in 12 months of work in that nine months um, so I can sort of travel for three months. But I'm also, while I'm traveling, still working. I'll often um, uh, email ahead and call ahead and meet other developers that are doing similar projects, or architects or builders and get ideas from them. So pretty much every day, in, in a way, work and life are very integrated. So I'll always try and um, pick the brains of the best 
property developers and architects in every city I go to and try and get ideas that I can bring back to Perth. But that also gives me the ability to sort of um, get perspective and get out of the office and come back and um, apply those ideas, but also have a break. I, I wouldn't be able to work at the pace I do when I'm in Perth for more than nine months of the year. I don't, I don't think anyone could. So um, that's just the way I'm built that I'm, when I'm here, I'm working really hard. And then therefore I, I, I need to um, travel about three months of the year. It must be said that outside of your business interests, you're also alongside your family, heavily involved in a number of charitable causes, in particular the co-founder of the Cambodian Children's Fund, uh, the Child Protection Unit in particular. What, what, what do you find so rewarding about being involved in charity and philanthropic causes? Yeah, I think it probably started when I was backpacking sort of 20 years ago in Asia and you know, I had no money. and particularly areas around Asia and in particular Cambodia was sort of coming out of that Khmer Rouge era 25, 30, 35 years ago and um, uh, and thought if I ever have any money this is where I want to do something and um, although we're doing a lot of different things now and um, not as involved in the um, child protection unit now but when when it started about 10 years ago um, I saw a thing on Australian Story I think it was and that just sort of um, reminded me of uh, you know, what I promised myself I'd do and had the business had just started um, becoming quite profitable and um, was, was getting bigger and building and um, thought, okay, well, if I'm going to do something, this is the first good step in doing, doing something else besides just investing money in projects and business and invested in that as, um, as a startup. And I, I contacted the, um, the, uh, the, the founder of um, the Cambodian Children's Fund and said, I don't really want to just give money to someone. I want to set up my own thing in partnership with you. You know, you're on the ground there. You've got some people and let's set up something different. And one of the gaps in when and the country had fallen apart as much as Cambodia had great people, but the systems of government were just pretty um, dysfunctional. And so therefore things like um, crimes against children and there was murder, rape or um, sexual abuse and all those things aren't necessarily investigated as much, um, particularly as in children. Um, if there's a country where there was corruption or bribery and it tends to be something where there's not a lot of money in investigating those things for police. So um, they, we employed um, a, a couple of ex-Australian federal police officer and, and, and um, we got some Cambodian police on some comment from the Cambodian government and set up the child protection unit um, five or ten years ago. Um, and that was really about complementing and working with the Cambodian government to um, make sure that crimes against children were, were um, investigated properly and that the perpetrators were, were brought to justice. So, um, and you know, I was uh, just involved in helping provide the funding to set it up and part of the board there, and that's been up and running for five or ten years now. And the team that are running up, uh, running it up there now, is self self-sufficient and uh, it's really something that's grown and, and looking after itself now. That's magnificent achievement. I thought we would close out our discussion with with all that you've achieved so far, are there any other sectors, industries or businesses that you see opportunity for growth in or investment in outside of property in, in the future? Yeah, um, it's a hard one in that, I mean, we've been, been investing the last few years and learning about funds and equities, but I don't know much about it. But I thought the great way to start is um, when the COVID crash happened a couple of years ago, I thought, well, I'll try this equities thing then. And, you know, that's done okay. Um, but uh, it's not something I know about. So I don't really have a um, anything unique, I, a skill that I can add there. But, um, uh, but yeah, been doing that. We'll continue sort of investing in funds and equities outside of 
property um, and outside of Australia, been investing in um, US companies and European companies and different things. Um, got an interesting one in the Philippines now with um, a friend's company where um, we're investing in um, data cables through Manila and um, putting in um, communications um, through the Philippines and uh, that sort of thing. So uh, investing in different things but I think outside of the apartment development we do now I think the build to rent so um, I've just had the last month in New York and the uh, you know some of the big build rent so, so, so why do you sell it was one guy like hold it and I said well okay I've got to rethink about how we how we don't sell anything um, and just hold them and so I'm working on that at the moment and we will be doing it at some point I've just got to find the right time on the build to rent, it's a completely different model. Just because it's apartments doesn't mean it's got anything to do with what we do now and sort of selling and developing uh, apartments in the larger higher end stuff. It's a completely different market. So I think I've worked out most of it and just got to um, decide when we're going to do it. Paul Blackburn, pleasure having you on the program and a credit to all that you've achieved and all that you've succeeded with over the years. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks very much.